Good morning again, Bethel. As uh, I was baptizing uh, Susanna and Kevin, was thinking ahead to Luke chapter 15 that we're going to get to soon. And, you know, you hear those testimonies and it's so encouraging. And you certainly rejoice over sinners who have repented. And just like it says in Luke 15, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who think they need no repentance. So praise God for his grace and continue to pray for Susanna and for Kevin as they grow in their faith in Christ. But we this morning are actually still back in chapter 14. So um, if you want to turn in your Bibles, if you're using a pew Bible, the text for this morning is on page 1042. Uh, actually, right at the end of 1041, because we're going to start in verse 15 and then on to verse 24. So we'll read that in just a minute. I want you to imagine yourself as a small business owner. Okay, so just imagine that you're starting up your own business and you need to establish yourself. You need to make a name for yourself. Um, you need to make sure that your business gives off the air of professionalism and polish. Uh, maybe you use a little more of your loan money than you should on your business car because you want to inspire confidence and ensure that the impression that you give off when you visit clients is one of success. You need to impress people. You get involved in some visible community service so that you're seen to be good for the community. You might even be the poster child for the Chamber of Commerce. At parties and events, you trawl for connections, and you're always looking for the next conversation up the social community ladder of status. Okay, and one day you receive this really fancy invitation in the mail from an extremely well-to-do, successful businessman in the community. It seems like maybe you're starting to break in. Can't wait for this event. You figure that working this party will reap handsome dividends, and so you don't even balk for a moment at buying a new designer suit and a new power tie for the occasion. Okay? You want to make sure you capitalize on this event and show that you belong in this man's among this man's friends. So that night you arrive, it's clear that your host has gone all out. Valets meet the guests in the circle drive in front of this palatial home. Home is aglow, appears that the guest list is quite extensive. There's a lot of people there. You're starting to salivate at these opportunities. You stroll in with your practiced walk of confident nonchalance. You savor your good fortune to be given such an exclusive invitation. And then the bubble of inflated importance just starts to leak pathetically as you look around the room. You recognize a couple of cashiers from the local grocery store. There's a barber who cuts your hair. The bartender from one of your favorite restaurants is there. Yeah, there's some business leaders from the community, but they're huddled, huddled together in pockets. Talk is obviously on the guest list. It appears that they also are trying, to, trying hard to enjoy themselves and simultaneously try to figure out the rationale behind this guest list. I mean, it seems like this guy will just invite anyone to his banquet. 
This is not going to be the networking goldmine you expected. You put on your game face nonetheless, and you try to saddle up, you know, to some of the right pockets of people. They're talking about the guest list, of course. For some reason, everybody in the circle seems to be looking out over the crowd from kind of an elevated perch. So there's indirect comments and glances and facial expressions and laughter, trying to breathe out this synthetic air of superiority. And then it hits you. What group did your host think you were in when he invited you? How would you know if all these other people are there? I mean, if the grocery store cashier is here, you have no idea where he pegged you. So discomfort and awkwardness starts to morph into insecurity. And your disdain for your host starts to rise. You're not going to be staying at this party too long. You've got better things to do. Okay. So obviously I'm exaggerating for the sake of the point, the illustration. But I wonder if... We're honest with ourselves. If we don't see or we have seen some of the desire roots in that story in our own hearts, maybe it's because you have some status and you would hate to lose it. Maybe it's because you have some status and you've had it threatened before. And you kind of notice what happens in your heart when it gets threatened. Maybe you wish you had some status and you've reached and overreached. Maybe you don't have the status you think you deserve and you disdain those who do have it. Maybe you secretly or in certain select conversations, you critique those with greater honor and status, whether that's at work or in your neighborhood or in the news or wherever. Why do we do that? Why, do we, why are we so critical? So just ponder those dynamics, where that intersects with your own heart, and then you know what? Guess what? Good news this morning. Jesus loves us. <laughs> and he wants to free us from that tiresome business. So let's listen to Jesus this morning and deny this good news. Good news to deny our status-seeking selves and follow him on the, on the happy path of the upside-down kingdom that he's laying out in these chapters of late. So let's read Luke Chapter 14, verses 15 to 24. And we'll talk context in just a second, catch you up to speed if you haven't been here, if you're visiting with us. So when one of those who were reclining at the table with Jesus heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said to him, a man was giving a big dinner and he invited many and at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now. But they all, like, began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I've married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done, and still there's room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in 
so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Okay, chapter 14 begins. Um, actually, let's pray, and then we'll talk context. Father, thank you for this day that you've made. Thank you for this word that we have to study this morning. Certainly this text, we need it. We're not here by accident, and we pray that you would teach us and shape us, open our eyes to see Jesus and his grace and his love in this passage. And we thank you for your word as a whole that is such an incalculable gift and treasure. Thank you, Lord, that you, even when you warn us, even when you get in and probe and get in our kitchen, as it were, it's because you love us and your patience is intended to lead us to repentance. Your warnings are grace to get us on the path with Jesus. And so, would you speak to us? Give us ears to hear, soft hearts to receive, and I pray that you would make us hungry for you this morning. Put us out of taste for all the stuff that competes with you as the truly satisfying food for our souls. Make us hungry for you. Make us hungry for your banquet. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so chapter 14 begins, and Jesus has entered into this house of um, a leader among the Pharisees, okay? So it's the Sabbath. It was after the synagogue meeting, and, you know, this guy invites Jesus to dinner. They're watching him, obviously. The opposition is escalating in these recent chapters, and there's this man with dropsy or edema, the swelling. We don't know the cause of it, um, but he would have been shunned. He would have been viewed as unclean. He would not be someone that would typically be in the house of a Pharisee. Um, Jesus does not bow to the unwritten guest host code of the day which was basically offend not thy host, okay? He goes on the offensive, and he raises the issue openly, looking them in the eye as they're examining him, watching him. He asks them, is it lawful for me to heal on the Sabbath or not? Crickets. No answer. So he heals the man, sends him away. They think that they're backing him into the corner, just more evidence for the case, because they're just going to stick it to him. And then he says, which of, which of you, if you have a son or an ox that falls into a well, would not immediately pull him out, even if it's on the Sabbath? Which of you? Again, there's crickets. Okay so, so, okay, so you're saying it's okay to love and deliver someone or something, an ox, on the Sabbath as long as it's yours? It's just not okay to do that deliverance for a suffering neighbor like this guy. Is that what you're saying? So who's backing who into the corner, okay? So again, there's crickets, no answer. They're watching him closely, and then he shows them, and he's been watching them. They love honor and status. They take great care um, to maintain and increase their honor. It's obvious from the way they choose their seats at, at, at that time of, of history, you know, table fellowship and meals. 
Um, where you were seated in relation to the host was a really big deal because that spoke to your honor and status. And Jesus basically blows up their value system and their social economy, turns it on its head and says that the values of the kingdom are such that you ought to seek humility, not seek honor and status. For, as he says in verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he turns to the host and says, don't give the get. Okay, don't use hospitality as a means to promote your honor and status. Don't let personal gain guide your guest list. It doesn't take any grace to give to those who will give to you in return, to love those who will love you in return. Everybody does that. Anybody can do that. Instead, invite those who can't repay you, those of little or no status, because your status doesn't matter. Love matters. And you will be blessed since they don't have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So you can imagine that's where Jesus is going in this meal setting. You can imagine that they've all been quite awkwardly silent for a little while here. These leaders are usually in control. They don't like to be mastered, especially by this renegade upstart that plays fast and loose with the law, so they think. And yet, they've got enough decorum and self-restraint to avoid making a scene. So one of them, you know, one who's kind of gifted in spiritual diplomacy, okay, speaks up and tries to shift the conversation in a happier direction. You know, there's been enough confrontation and discomfort for one meal. So king off of Jesus's invite the poor, lame, crippled, blind, and you will be blessed, king off that, he says, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Right, teacher? We can, we can, at least we can all agree on that. Okay? And, and again, Jesus could have backed down and left well enough alone. No, he doesn't back down from the awkwardness. He, does, he doesn't take the cue to move on to more positive things. He loves these hypocrites too much to do that. So he tells them a story about a man who gave a big party. Look at the invitation in verses 15 to 17. But Jesus said to him, <clears throat> a man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. You have to know that back then, and it's, it'll probably be obvious pretty quickly, that double invitations were commonplace. You can probably guess why. It took time to prepare stuff. You don't know how long it's going to take. And you needed to know how much to prepare. So you sent out the initial invitation. You find out how many people accept the invitation. Then you know whether you prepare, you know, a lamb or a cow, calf, or whatever, you know. You need to know how much to prepare. And then when it's ready, you have to send the servant out again because why? There's no refrigerators. There's no saran wrap. There's no Tupperware containers. There's no freezers. So it's ready now. You need to come now so that... It will all be eaten. Okay, so the slave rings the proverbial dinner bell. Everything's ready now. But rather than getting the expected guests who had already accepted the first initial invitation, he gets excuses. Look at the excuses in verses 18 to 21. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a piece of land and I need to uh, go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going I'm to try them out. 
please consider me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. It's almost as if there's a conspiracy among the invitees to smear the reputation of the host. It's almost as if they're trying to undermine the acceptability and honor of this host. Because think about it. In that culture, what a dishonor, a public shaming statement it was to reject the invitation. And then rejection after rejection, you'd almost wonder, what's going on here? Are, are they in together on this? Well, remember, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. <laughs> and they're obviously getting together against him. So they make their excuses. First, I bought some property. I need to go and look at it. Okay, who in the world would buy a piece of I know it happens, but, you know, by and large, come on, generally speaking, who in the world would buy a piece of property without having already looked at it? It's the dinner hour. What is going to happen between, you know, whatever time that was and tomorrow when you can go look at it? Nothing's going to happen. It's absurd. And so, yes, in Greek, in the first century, that excuse is still as lame as it sounds in English in our century. Okay? Second, I bought ten oxen. I need to try them out. Okay? No one would buy oxen without making sure that they could do the work that you were buying them for. Okay? Go ahead. Capital L. Lame. These are obviously people of means, so purchasing property. Ten oxen. The last one, I've married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. Okay, there's probably an allusion here to Deuteronomy 24, where maybe you're familiar with this. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home. Uh, free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he's taken. But again, this is misapplication of the text. The main purpose there is to protect him against dying in battle and leave a very young widow. And secondly, to promote this you know, happy foundation of, of marriage by guarding him from too heavy a load of outside duties. This had nothing to do with going to a party. Okay? That's not a heavy load duty. And they go together. So bottom line, the whole point of these excuses is it's intended to be obvious. These are transparently lame, and that's the point. They don't want to come. That's the point. They have more important things to do, more important business to attend to. And so their lame excuses, precisely because they're so transparently lame, publicly shame the host. They make it very clear that his honor is not what they're after at all. They're after their own selfish gain. Oh, yes, teacher, blessed is, the, is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom. And Jesus responds, looking them in the eye and saying, and looking us in the eye and saying, indeed, will you be there? Will you be among them? Now, we could easily kind of put the black hat on the Pharisees and just say, oh, you know, these guys are ridiculous. Hold it out at arm's length. What, what, what does this look like for us? I mean, what's, what's the issue here that spans all histories and cultures and times and, and kind of runs through all of our hearts? I think when it comes down to choices, 
What happens when status in community or at work or with family is in competition with faithfulness to Jesus? What trumps what? That's actually where we're going to go next week at the end of chapter 14. So he's setting that up. It comes down to choices for us when status in community or at work or with family trumps faithfulness to Jesus. If we will lose status and we choose status over Jesus, that's what Jesus is after. Here's the question, or a couple questions. Whose honor do you want to honor? Whose honor do you value? So our choices come down to where our treasure is, to what we value. Are we shaped, are you and I shaped by the economy of the kingdom of Jesus that he's laying out or by the economy of the kingdoms of this world? Okay, what if your work consistently takes priority to knowing and following Jesus? We can make excuses. But doesn't there come a point where the reason why we're not pursuing Jesus is not because of our busy, busy schedule? It's because we don't want to. We need to stop cloaking it in something else. You really, 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 really need to and want to stay faithful and succeed in your work. But do you really want to and need to stay faithful to and commune with Jesus? So work and social esteem and status and family issues, those are the context in which our values come clear. They bubble up and are exposed. So it's in these contexts of testing that our values and our treasure is made obvious. We will always make time for what we want to make time for. So take the third excuse now. What if your spouse, as he moves it into family relationships, and for what it's worth, these are just three representative categories. It's not like these are the only excuses out there, okay? What if your spouse isn't, quote-unquote, into Jesus like you are? Maybe he or she is willing to go to church now and then or whatever, but if on account of their values, you value Jesus less what if, what if you allow their disinterest to chill your interest? What does that mean? It means that you have a greater interest than Jesus. I know there's all kinds of qualifications and nuances if you were to really unpack that for someone if they were wrestling through that situation, okay? But still, the issue stands. It exposes where our heart is at. Okay, we can all fall prey to this. But here, here's, here's the real concern. If it's normal for all these things to trump Jesus, and it's not fought and denied and repented of and wrestled with, then we are no different from this Pharisee and his company, okay? And Jesus loved them enough to warn them, and so he lives, loves us enough to warn us here as well. Okay, so again, these are three representative sample excuses that it might not feel like they kind of cover your, your issues one-to-one, -one, okay? But what, what could keep you out of the kingdom? Don't, don't blow that question off. 
These last couple chapters in Luke have made it very clear that there are going to be plenty of surprises at the end. No, open up to us. We ate in your presence. You taught in our streets. Depart from me. I I don't know where you're from. So what could keep you out of the kingdom? Listen to this quote. This quote is very sobering, and I think it's very helpful. Okay? read it a while ago, um, and I've thought of it many times for my own life and um, for others as well. The greatest enemy, this is by John Piper in the book Hunger for God. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It's not the X-rated video, although that can do it too, but the prime-time dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. Those aren't bad things. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost, praise God for the almost, incurable. So, again, realize what these lame excuses mean. They mean that the host is worth less. Hyphen on purpose. Worth less than lots of infinitely less worthy pursuits. They mean that true worth must lie elsewhere than in his house under his blessing. That's what these guests are saying with their excuses. So if we say that with our lives, then we've got to ask a couple of questions. Who do we think we are? Who do we think we are that we could say that the master, the host of hosts, is not worth our time? And then, who do we think Jesus is? And again, not just just on paper, but actually in practice, actually in our hearts. Who do we think Jesus is? That we could say that the master, the host of hosts, is not worth our time. We might just need to repent and join the party. We'll consider that a little bit more in a minute. So how did the host respond to these excuses? Look at verses 21 to 24. He's going to fill his house. And the slave came back, reported this to his master. Then the head of the house became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and crippled and blind and lame. Is that, you remember that? That's almost exactly the same phrase back in verse 13, saying to the host, when you, you know, put on a banquet, don't invite those who can pay you back with a reciprocal invitation or whatever else, but instead invite the poor, crippled, blind, and lame, okay? So here's this master saying, bring in the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. And the slave said, master, what you've commanded has been done, and still there's room. And the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them. That's not coercion. That's basically, they're going to think it's a joke because they don't think they're worthy. So you're really going to have to convince them that I want them here because <laughs> they're not going to think they deserve it. They're going to think, 
what is this trick? Are you, are you going to actually subjugate us more? It's too good to be true. Compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, and actually surprisingly enough, that's plural, because Jesus basically is pointing this at all of his guests. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. So the master gets angry at these lame excuses, at the dishonoring of his name, at at the invited guests actually choosing trinket gain to true gain. Okay, fine. The banquet's ready. We will fill my house with those who actually want to be in it. Those who see and value the blessing of my banquet and want to enjoy it. There's actually a dual edge to so that my house may be filled. Okay, positively, Jesus wants to fill his house. It's great. He came to seek and save the lost. Came to bring them in and bless them at his table. He wants a full house, a crowded house. All kinds of people can come in. Like that hymn that we love, all fitness he requires, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Okay, so that's great. It's so radically and gloriously and graciously inclusive, this invitation. The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the outcast, the riffraff, the marginalized, the unclean, the underprivileged, the weak. This is not the A-list banquet. This is the A to Z-list banquet. And if you think that you are an A and it's below you to hang out with the Z's, then you're going to want to come. You might just come up with your own lame excuses. But you know what? God's going to fill up his house. And here's the way it cuts both ways. And there will be no more room left for those who didn't want to come. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. So once again, it's so very loving. These guys are watching him. They are wanting to pin him to the wall. They've got a conspiracy planned. And here he is. He doesn't care. He loves them enough to look them in the eye and warn them. It's so very loving of Jesus to interrupt their little dinner party, to warn them of making lame excuses and rejecting his invitation to the true banquet so that they don't miss out on the blessing of the wedding, wedding feast of the Lamb. Okay? So that guy, oh, blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom. Jesus could have just said, yeah, fat chance, you're not going to be there. Your status-loving... You know, he doesn't do that. He does get in their face, but he does it for the sake of leading them to repentance. Even these guys that want to pin him to the wall. So the bottom line, and this is just, we've got to look in and be honest with ourselves. Do you want to eat with Jesus? Do I want to eat with Jesus? Or are we making excuses? Do you want to eat with Jesus, or will you one day curse your cursed excuses? These were good, religious, church-going folk that Jesus is addressing here. They were the ones who would say, blessed are those who eat bread in the kingdom. Won't it be great when we all get to heaven? They're the ones giving the excuses. It is really possible, just think about this. Jesus is making this abundantly clear here. It is really possible to say this, 
Blessed is everyone who eats in the kingdom. And not really want to be there, and yet think that you really want to be there. That's sobering. (laughs) Which is why it's really gracious of Jesus to just not beat around the bush and just lovingly confront that. Okay, Jesus is not talking to the people who are having too much fun down at the casino or the racetrack or that wild party on Saturday night. In fact, those, ten, those folks tended to really want to be, want to be with Jesus. So do, do we really want to eat with Jesus? Then we will eat with Jesus. We will feast on the bread of life no matter what the cost to our personal social status, and we're going to want to invite others no matter who they are, to feed on him with us. Okay, so just think of where things go soon after this. A parallel in chapter 15, the older brother, you know, the, it's called prodigal son oftentimes. But how does it end? The older brother refuses to go into the party because he's self-righteous, because he's proud, because he wanted the blessings from the father rather than the relationship with the father. And he doesn't think this other guy deserves it. And he's just ticked off. Excuses, excuses, okay? So underneath, what, what's, what's fundamentally the issue? What you want is fundamentally the issue. Do you have a pulse on what you treasure? Do you keep your pulse on what you treasure? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. And a man, after he found it, he sold all that he had. In his joy, he went and sold all that he had to buy that field. He's hungry. He wants that field. So he's going to guard his heart. Guard your heart, for from it flow all the issues of life. So do you have the pulse on what you treasure? Do you keep your pulse on what you treasure? Listen how... (laughs) This is sobering, but it's really good to hear this. God gets angry when we refuse to eat what is good. Jeremy Taylor, a Puritan, said, God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy in him. And so mercifully, graciously, he calls us away from lesser things to the greatest things. The text that that Jay read from Isaiah 55, come to the, why do you waste your money on that which isn't food? What can't benefit you truly? Come, eat what's good. It's free. Come, why don't you want to come? So we might just need to repent of all the cheesy parties and in-groups and circles we want to be in and start eating what is really, truly good. This is a call to taste and see that the Lord is good. We need kingdom taste buds. The Spirit of God comes. This This is one way to describe conversion. You get new taste buds. All of a sudden, you're put out of taste for the things that used to allure you and have such power over you, and all of a sudden, you've got hunger and thirst for something completely different or different things that used to be tasteless to you. So the Spirit of God comes, gives us new hearts, puts a new spirit within us so that we have new desires and new taste buds. If created things taste better to you than Jesus, you will not join Him at His table. Even if you say... Blessed, so piously, blessed or, or ritualistically or whatever, lip service. 
So we need to taste and see that the Lord is good. That's the only way to heaven. (laughs) Isn't that great? How about that for a call to the gospel? Taste and see. Come and eat. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom. Yes, indeed. Will you and I be among them? What are we hungry for now? Okay? Because if we realize that we are nothing more than poor spiritual beggars, when we get invited to Jesus' party, we are so thankful and overwhelmed. We are saying, what in the world am I doing here? You're pinching yourself. That, that me, even spiritual mendicant beggar that I am, me, what in the world am I doing here that Jesus, the host of hosts, the King of kings, the master of masters, the one who has the greatest honor in the universe, who's worthy of all praise, he's given me bread. He's feeding me at his table. He invited me to his table. What am I doing here? The bread of life, the best bread by the best host. If that's the orientation, then we're going to have no problem partying with and inviting other spiritually bankrupt beggars to the meal. So Romans 12, 16 says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Okay? Think, in Jesus' story, the host is a man of means. Those who make excuses are also those of means. Property, oxen. So there's this edge of warning here for those who stand, listen to this, who stand to lose status and honor by following Jesus. Okay, there are some people in the world, I think this is why James says, has not God chosen those who are poor poor in the eyes of this world to be rich in faith? They don't have anything to lose. And that's proverbially, generally speaking, certainly there are people who are poor in the eyes of the world that care way more about these things. But the lead edge here is special warning to those who have status and honor to lose. Okay? And I think all of us, we've got, you know, regardless of your social standing, there's stuff to lose if we're really hungry for Jesus and following him faithfully. So whose honor do we value more highly? Jesus' honor or those in whose eyes we may lose status. Whose honor? The honor that can be conferred by them or by Jesus? Which do we value more highly? Whose honor do we value more highly? Jesus' honor or our honor in the eyes of those other people? Okay, so if on the other hand we don't have a high view of ourselves, then this passage is such a sweet reminder that the messianic banquet, the feast of feasts, the wedding feast of the Lamb is open to us. I mean, we have no right to eat at this table, and yet we will eat at this table. Okay, inclusion at Jesus' table is not about social or economic or religious or even moral status. It's about humbly accepting the invitation, not giving lame excuses, as if there was anything in the world more important or valuable than the honor of this host. And this host is the one who is willing to be shamed Do you see how the host in the story, he just totally threw the honor-shame thing and the guest list stuff to the wind? Bring them all in. I don't care what it says about me. My house is going to be filled. We're going to have a party. And 
God so loved this world that he sent his son, and Jesus willingly took on flesh and became a slave, even to the point of death, death on a cross. So this host was willing to be shamed so that we could be included. So do we know our spiritual poverty? Do we know the riches of Jesus' mercy? Do we want to eat with him? And do we wonder at the fact that even us, even me, could be sitting at his table? I mean, I think we just ought to be blown away with how blessed we are and how right this Pharisee was, even though he didn't realize it. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom. So if you want to, if you want to, you will eat with Jesus. End on an encouraging, positive, like, this is awesome, hope-filled point. Let's remind ourselves, we are going to join Jesus at the wedding feast of the Lamb. We're going to participate in the eternal party in the new heavens and the new earth. Listen to Isaiah 25. Make it your own. This is, this is, this is your future. doesn't matter if you don't get invited to anything in this life and you just feel like you're always on the outside, it doesn't matter. This is yours. Listen to this. Isaiah 25, O oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, the foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, he goes on and on and basically he's saying those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And then he's going to raise up the humble, just like it says in Luke 14. Verse 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts, I love this, will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, and he will, here's what's on the menu for God, wonderful menu for us, on God's menu is, I'm going to swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all peoples, the veil that's spread over all the nations. I'm going to swallow up death forever. I'm going to eat death, and I'm going to give you full and abundant life forever and set out the best feast you, you could even conceive of, way beyond your comprehension. He'll swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will take away from all, he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. Some like, sometimes it seemed like loss. Like we were, we were getting the short end of the stick. But oh, by his grace, he kept us hanging on in faith and we wanted him. And we wanted to eat at his table. And here he is. We waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So here's how it ends. Revelation 19. From the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. The great can be humble too and want him. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." And the angel said to me, write this. 
Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. So the banquet is nearly ready. Can smell it? We've smelled it. We've been able to sample some of the fare. We can eat the bread of life and drink the living water now. And it makes us hungry. We have, we have the first fruits and the foretaste now, and it makes us hungry for the fullness of the banquet. So let's stay hungry and get the invitations out, especially to those who aren't on anyone's guest list but Jesus's, just like us. We don't deserve to be on anybody's guest list, certainly not Jesus's. So let's stay hungry and get the invitations out. Revelation twenty-two seventeen, and then we're going to close with a song, All Who Are Thirsty. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires, who wants it, take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen? Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all. Amen.